Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Although this marriage was most unworthy of the House of Este, want to make the most noble alliances, and all the more unworthy because the Lucrezia was illegitimate and stained with great infamy. Ercole and Alfonso consented, because the French king, desiring to satisfy the Pope in all things, made strong importunities for this union. Besides this, they were motivated by a desire for securing themselves by such means from the arms and ambitions of Cesare Borgia if, against such perfidy, any security whatever were sufficient. For Cesare, now powerful with the monies and authority of the Apostolic See, and the favour which the French king bore him, was already formidable throughout a great part of Italy, and everyone knew his cupidity had neither limit nor bridle. The History of Italy by Francesco Gicciardini, 1537 Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.15, Lucrezia Borgia, Chestnuts and Mares. Last time, we saw Lucrezia Borgia have, let's be honest, a pretty rubbish time. Her family mucked her around good and proper, calling off two engagements shortly after making them, murdering her lover, forcing her to divorce her first husband after trying to murder him, and then successfully murdering the second husband. She was... Very dangerous to know, but not because of anything she had done. When we left her, she had been sent away from Rome after her grief at the death of her second husband, Alfonso of Aragon, was bumming out the people that had ordered the hit. Today, we will see her married for the third and final time, and finally break out from the shadow of her father and brother. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep this show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Now, full disclosure, I've had a hell of a non-COVID related cold this week, and my voice is not its usual sparkly self. I'm going to guess it's going to get more and more husky as we go along. But the show must go on, so let's do this thing. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you... Welcome back. Lady, 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 lady. 
Lucrezia's mourning period in Nepi would last four months. She had visited the castle with Alfonso only a few months before his death, so every room, every tapestry, every piece of furniture would have reminded her of him. Not that she would have seen much of it. The castle was draped in black, and she would have seen the world through a mourning veil. Throughout that period, the only person she would see was her beloved brother, Cesare. Given that he had given the order that had seen her husband die, it's difficult to imagine why she would want to see him at all. But this demonstrates so clearly how deep her affection for her brother went. During this period, she wrote a number of letters to friends and servants, each of them filled with sorrow. Indeed, in one, she called herself the, quote, unhappy princess of Salerno. Seemingly, the great, in fact, the only light in her life of woe was her infant son, Rodrigo, with much of the letters devoted to ordering clothes and gifts for the young boy. But as 1500 turned into 1501, Lucrezia found herself making her way back to Rome to meet the man whom her family had chosen to become husband number three. Now, this may seem a bit callous and ruthless, She was still in mourning for the husband her family had had murdered only a few months before. But there were good practical reasons why it was important for Lucrezia to be remarried and fast. Her father, Pope Alexander, was 69 years old, a solid innings for the day, and who knew how long he would stay alive. And once he died, there was no guarantee that a friend of the Borgias would succeed him. Marry now, and she would be sure of a good match. Wait, and she could be at the back of the line. And the man lined up for her was illustrious indeed. The Deste family was one of the oldest and most venerable in Italy. Ruling over the Duchy of Ferrara in the northern part of the Papal States, they could trace their family line back through hundreds of years of nobility, and had tentacles in the German part of the Holy Roman Empire, most notably Saxony and Hanover. Indeed, our current queen, Elizabeth II, has d'Este blood flowing through her veins. Duke Ercole of Ferrara had been in post for three decades. You may remember him from a previous episode as one of the combatants in the Salt War, but remained neutral throughout the First Italian War, trying to strike a balance between maintaining good relations with the Pope without risking the wrath of France. His eldest son, Andere, unhelpfully called Alfonso, was a widower after being previously married to Caterina Sforza's younger sister, Anna. Alfonso was four years older than Lucrezia and wasn't exactly what one would call a looker. He was scrawny, coarse-faced, with a stocky build and a rather stubborn complexion. His contemporary biographer, who had an interest in making him look good, wrote that he was, quote, of a grave and lordly aspect, more melancholy and severe than happy and joyous. But since when did male looks play any bearing on a noble marriage? He was well known for having only two areas of interest, artillery and prostitutes. He spent his days in his own foundry, where he cast some of the finest siege guns in the world. By night, well, you get the picture. Famously, one night in the summer of 1497, he was reported to have stalked the streets of Ferrara fully naked, along with some of his friends. 
is little surprise that the Venetian ambassador reviewed him as having, quote, little sense. That all said, he was still a promising match for Lucrezia. Becoming Duchess of Ferrara would be a huge step up in rank, far greater than the small territories her previous two husbands had controlled. Ferrara was independently powerful and could not easily be pushed around. Marrying into the Deste family could give her the freedom to get out from under her family's influence. No longer a pawn in a game played by her father and brother. Not that this marriage wasn't extremely beneficial for Cesare. In fact, it was his idea and would benefit him greatly. After defeating Caterina Sforza, along with some other noble families, he had conquered a nice little duchy for himself in the Romagna, the region just south of Ferrara. Indeed, Ferrara buffered Cesare's new little empire from the Duchy of Milan and the Venetian Republic. With only papal lands to the south and Florence no longer a threat, this marriage could secure Cesare's rule for decades to come. Ercole d'Este was not particularly keen on the idea. He was used to marrying his children off to venerable Italian families. Not the illegitimate daughter of an upstart Spanish priest with a reputation that one could generally call mixed. Rumours of incest and murder swirled around the Borgias. This was not the kind of marriage that Hercule had in mind for his son. He had his sights set on the French royal family. In a letter to his ambassador to France, he told him to tell King Louis, quote, To speak freely with his majesty, we shall never consent to give Madonna Lucrezia to Don Alfonso, nor could Alfonso ever be induced to take her. But King Louis needed the Pope far more than he needed Ferrara. He had just concluded a peace treaty with Ferdinand of Aragon, the King of Spain, that would divide the Kingdom of Naples between them. But since Naples was technically a papal fief, they needed the Pope's blessing to make this happen. Pope Alexander made it clear that he would only agree to this if the king put pressure on his friend Ercole to agree to the marriage of Alfonso and Lucrezia. Ercole drove a hard bargain. He really didn't want to do this, and he had to be bought off at a high cost. His ambassador to France put it this way, quote, The practical overcame the honourable. But that it was only out of his loyalty to King Louis and fear of Borgia reprisals that he would, quote, condescend to such an unequal relationship. The quote that I read at the beginning of the episode from Guicciardini's History of Italy summed up the situation well. The Destes knew that the Borgias couldn't be trusted and felt the marriage was beneath them. But they had no choice. After agreeing to the marriage, Ercole wrote to Lucrezia, putting a brave face on a bad situation, welcoming her to the family. Quote, We rejoice for that with you, whom first we loved uncommonly for your singular virtues, and for our reverence for the holiness of our Lord, and as the sister of the most illustrious Duke of the Romagna, who we hold as an honoured brother. Now we love you intimately as more than a daughter, hoping that through you there will come the continuation of our posterity. Before the wedding took place, though, Lucrezia had some final duties to perform in Rome as a Borgia. In July 1501, 
Pope Alexander planned a trip to inspect some castles he had seized and left Lucrezia in charge. According to Bachard, quote, he turned over the palaces and all the business affairs to his daughter Lucrezia, authorising her to open all letters addressed to him. This is a singular honour. As we've seen in previous episodes, rulers often entrusted their wives with regency powers when they went away on a trip. This was most common in the High Middle Ages, as we saw with the Queens of England. Pope Alexander, obviously, had no wife, and so Lucrezia was ideally placed to step in. It's worth noting here her age. She was just 21, yet she was entrusted with essentially running one of the most influential courts in Europe and opening the mail of arguably the most powerful man in Christendom. Others may have sacked this off, passing all the important stuff onto a functionary while enjoying the fruits of their labour. But not Lucrezia. She got stuck in, taking her responsibilities very seriously, working diligently, and seeking advice when needed. While some have used this as yet another example of the rampant nepotism and corruption of the Borgias, this was not an unusual practice elsewhere in Europe, and demonstrates the faith the Pope had in his daughter, and the skills she had already shown as a stateswoman. Ercole took advantage of this situation, and asked his ambassador to keep an eye on Lucrezia. He reported that, quote, Her ladyship does not cease every day to ask when we believe she may be leaving here, because, in truth, one hour seems a thousand until she was able to be at Ferrara to do reverence to your excellency, and find herself in the sight of the most illustrious Don Alfonso. And here, now, seems like a prison to her. So great is her desire to come. However, this image of a woman itching to leave Rome doesn't really ring true. The Ferrare's ambassador himself reports that she often spent hours dancing and enjoying herself, to the extent that it actually damaged her health. It doesn't exactly seem like she was suffering in a coffin of her family's making, especially while she was ruling the roost. Indeed, it's around this time that possibly the most infamous event in the history of the Borgia papacy is said to have taken place, the Banquet of the Chestnuts. According to the papal master of ceremonies, Johann Bachard, quote, On the evening of the last day of October 1501, Cesare Borgia arranged a banquet in his chambers in the Vatican with 50 honest prostitutes called courtesans who danced after dinner with the attendants and others who were present, at first in their garments, then naked. After dinner, the candelabra with the burning candles were taken from the tables and placed on the floor and chestnuts were strewn around, which the naked courtesans picked up, creeping on hands and knees between the chandeliers, while the Pope, Cesare, and his sister Lucrezia looked on. Finally, prizes were announced for those who could have sex most with the courtesans, such as tunics of silk, shoes, barrets, and other things. This is quite the assertion, and it won't surprise you to hear that the account's accuracy is disputed. That there was a party that night thrown by Cesare Borgia, and that there were courtesans present, is not in doubt, but the more lurid aspects, such as the competition of sexual prowess, seem rather unlikely, as they are only related by Bachard. In the words of Sarah Bradford, he, quote, must have had one eye to the keyhole and the other on posterity. 
This is not the only scandalous story that Pachard relates about Lucrezia around this time. Two weeks after the supposed banquet of the chestnuts, a peasant brought some female horses into the city laden with wood. Quote, When the mares reached the Piazza San Pietro, some of the palace guards came up, cut through the straps, and threw off the saddles and the wood in order to lead the mares into the courtyard immediately inside the palace gate. Four stallions were then freed from their reins and harness and let out of the palace stables. They immediately ran to the mares, over whom they proceeded to fight furiously and noisily amongst themselves, biting and kicking in their attempts to mount them and seriously wounding them with their hooves. The Pope and Madonna Lucrezia, laughing and with evident satisfaction, watched all that was happening from a window above the palace gate. The inference here is clear. Bichard has placed Lucrezia and her father together in two situations where public sex is taking place. She was not embarrassed by what was going on. Indeed, she seemed to enjoy it. She's being portrayed as a woman of loose morals and rampant sexuality. But more than that, she was doing so alongside her father, thus fanning the flames of accusations of incest. These accusations, among others, were then spread throughout the courts of Europe through the so-called Letter to Savelli. Silvio Savelli was a Roman nobleman who had fallen foul of the Borgias and was currently in exile at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. This letter, written by a friend, excoriates the Borgias, asking, quote, Who is not shocked to hear tales of the monstrous lascivity openly exhibited at the Vatican in defiance of God and all human decency? Who is not repelled by the debauchery, the incest, the obscenity of the children of the Pope, son and daughter, the flocks of courtesans in the palace of St. Peter? Rodrigo Borgia is an abyss of vice and a subverter of all justice, human or divine. These are the words of a man with an axe to grind, and an obvious motive in denigrating the Borgia name. But even if we temper back some of the accusations with the assumption that they are exaggerated, they still seem pretty sensational, right? No smoke without fire and all that? Well, maybe. But that seems based on the assumption that the Borgias were different from the other great families of Italy. And that simply isn't the case. Courtesans have been ever-present in Rome for centuries, and open sexuality at the heart of the Vatican was nothing new. Again, the issue we have is that most of our history comes from the pens of Borgia enemies. Perhaps the family were at the tip of the debauchery spear, but if so, they were only like everyone else. Perhaps only more so. Whatever the veracity of the accusations, they were enough to give Hercule d'Este pause. Even with the pressure being put on him by France to agree to the match, did he really want to sully his son's reputation by marrying him to this licentious woman? However, his ambassador to Rome urged him not to listen to the gossip. Quote, Madonna Lucrezia is a most intelligent and lovely and also exceedingly gracious lady. Besides being extremely graceful in every way, she is modest and lovable and decorous. Moreover, she is a devout and God-fearing Christian. Tomorrow she is going to confession, and during Christmas week she will receive communion. She is very beautiful, but her charm of manner is still more striking. In short, 
her character is such that it is impossible to suspect anything sinister of her. Lucrezia also endeared herself to Ercole d'Este by interceding with her father to dispatch some famous nuns to Ferrara. Ercole had been rebuffed by their mother superior, but a stern word from Lucrezia with her father's backing carried the day. She also secured the title of Archpriest of St. Peter's for Cardinal Ippolito d'Este and other church benefices for members of the family. So the marriage would go ahead. But the Duke of Ferrara had one last stipulation before he would agree to marry his son to Lucrezia. And it was a tough one. Lucrezia had a two-year-old son, Rodrigo, from her second marriage living proof that she wasn't the ideal virginal bride. The idea of raising another man's child was intolerable to the Destes. If Lucrezia came to Ferrara, then Rodrigo had to stay in Rome. The sources all suggest that Lucrezia assented to this condition without question. However cruel it may appear to our eyes, it wasn't an abnormal demand. Rodrigo's care was entrusted to her cousin, Francesca Borgia, the Archbishop of Cosenza. Finally, on the 6th of January, 1502, Lucrezia Borgia set off from Rome to Ferrara. She was going there as representative of her family, and was outfitted as such. It was estimated that she had the equivalent of about $12 million worth of dresses, jewels, plate and ornaments. In her biography, Sarah Bradford outlines just some of what she brought with her. Quote, More than 50 underdresses of the richest materials, gold brocade lined with turquoise taffeta, and sleeves in the French style lined with crimson satin, one of cloth of gold striped with violet satin, and lined with half turquoise and half green taffeta, the wide French sleeves again lined with violet satin, Another was made of black velvet sewn with golden toggles linked by gold cords with lining and sleeves of turquoise damask. Others were made of tabby, watered silk, of black velvet striped with grey satin. Then there were basques, underskirts, robes, tabards, capes, among which two were particularly notable for their magnificence. One of violet satin lined with ermine and adorned with 84 ballast rubies, 29 diamonds and 115 pearls. The other of crimson satin, also lined with ermine and embroidered with 61 rubies, 51 diamonds, 5 large pearls, 412 medium-sized pearls and 114 small ones. There were trunks of enameled gold ornaments, elaborate bed hangings, valances and canopies, richly embroidered tablecloths, bed covers of crimson satin, cloth of gold, azure velvet embroidered with gold and silver thread, cushioned backrests, wall hangings, tapestries and door curtains depicting biblical scenes, great cushions in valuable materials for seating and tapestries of flowers and trees. Harness for horses and mules included elaborate cloths of velvet, and comparisons of silver and gold, including one with 22 little hanging bell fans, one of which contained 100 ostrich feathers, elaborate coffers and chests, shoes in velvet and satin, including 27 pairs imported from Valencia in gilded leather, emblazoned crystal cups with gold feet and covers, huge quantities of silver and silver gilt. There were lavish furnishings for her private chapel, including a great crucifix in crystal with the figures of the Virgin and St. John, mounted on silver, porphyry reliquaries and golden chalices, 
pyxes, ampoules and bowls, altar cloths, cushions, two missiles on vellum and velvet covers with silver and gold clasps and holy paintings. Woman after my own heart, she also brought her own private library, which included, rather pleasingly, a printed collection of the letters of your friend and mine, St. Catherine of Siena. We've discussed many times on this podcast the politics of appearance, how conspicuous displays of wealth were hugely important in demonstrating your power and prestige. This was particularly important for nouveau riche families like the Borgias. They did not have an illustrious family name to fall back on. All they had was their recently obtained wealth and position, and a good deal of it was carted to Ferrara with Lucrezia. It was a snowy morning, the Feast of Epiphany. Dressed in gold with an ermine-lined cloak, she waved one last time to her father, who reportedly hurried from window to window to capture one final glance at his beloved daughter as she travelled down the Via Flaminia to her new life in Ferrara. Lucrezia was cold and tired. She spent the near 300-mile journey from Rome to Ferrara in the saddle, a far longer trip than she was used to. She was anxious about her son, exhausted by the number of receptions she received in the towns en route, and worried about making a good impression when she arrived. The roads were terrible, the weather freezing, and progress excruciatingly slow. She was constantly on display and required to be happy, cheerful and charming to people she'd never met before or frankly gave a damn about. It's perhaps not surprising that she took every moment she could to be on her own. The latter part of her journey saw her travel through her brother's lands, territory that had not long before belonged to the Sforzas. Indeed, she spent a night in Pesaro, the city she had been countess of during her first marriage. One can only imagine the awkward conversation she would have had that day. Security was tight, there were rumours of kidnap in the air, and progress slowed to a crawl. Ercole d'Estate was tearing his hair out. He had expected Lucrezia days ago, and had made grandiose plans for her entrance. But his envoys, with his soon-to-be daughter-in-law, could only report delays. He did, however, receive glowing reports about her conduct. According to one of his men, quote, I can tell you that the bearing of this lady is modest, from the head which has no curls, and her breast is covered, as indeed is the case with all her damsels. Every day she makes a better impression on me. She is a lady with a very good mind, astute so that you have to keep your wits about you with her. To sum up, I hold her to be a wise lady, and this is not only my opinion, but that of all the company. The happiest recipient of this news was Alfonso d'Este. He had not been wild about the match. He had not particularly enjoyed being married before, and a second wedding would get in his way of his main hobbies of canons and ladies of the night. But these reports got him so excited that he paid his betrothed a surprise visit while she was in Bologna. This again from the Farinese envoys. Quote, This evening, at the 23rd hour... The illustrious Duchess having arrived shortly before, the illustrious Don Alfonso arrived unexpectedly. 
so that he had already mounted the stairs of his palace before the Duchess had notice of it. The Duchess, although she was astonished by the unexpected arrival of Don Alfonso, nonetheless received his lordship with so much reverence and good grace that it must not have displeased her. We cannot describe the joy which all her company experienced, and Don Alfonso in person, and manners could truly not have comported himself in every way with more kindness and naturalness, which pleased everybody. She had made a super impression on Alfonso, but he was only one of the destes that she had to impress. Next, she had to meet his sister. Isabella d'Este is one of the towering women of Renaissance Italy. She was the Marchesa of Mantua, having married Francesca Gonzaga, who you may remember from the last episode. She was ferociously intelligent, a tremendous singer and musician, and a great patron of the arts. She was sketched by Leonardo da Vinci, a drawing that now sits in the Louvre, and was praised by the writer Niccolò de Correggio as the first lady of the world. She was six years older than Lucrezia and had no love for the Borgias. She was descended from queens and looked down on Lucrezia as the bastard daughter of a foreign priest who somehow now outranked her within her own family. In short, she was a snob. But she was also reassured. She had expected an arrogant party girl, a larger-than-life character. Instead, she found a pale, somewhat shy and nervous girl barely in her twenties. Surely, she must have thought, I can dominate this Borgia princess. Isabella greeted Lucrezia warmly enough, and the two got to know each other on a boat trip, the final leg of the journey. Lucrezia had relied on strong female friendships all her life, such as with Giulia Farnese and Sancho of Aragon. She was determined to add Isabella to that cohort of friends, but she would be disappointed. When she finally arrived in Ferrara, she found a city on parade. Every street teemed with crowds welcoming Lucrezia. Every wall was bedecked in the deste colours of red, white and green. It was a walled city and a cultural hub. A fortress and a theatre. She officially entered the city on the 2nd of February 1502 across the River Po on a magnificent horse accompanied by livery guardsmen. The trip got off though to an inauspicious start when her trusty steed, surprised by a sudden burst of ceremonial gunfire, threw her off and charged away. The crowd gasped, but was reassured when the laughing Lucrezia picked herself up, dusted herself off, and accepted a stout mule as her new mount. The procession took two hours to travel the mile or so to the central piazza, where the Cathedral of St George the Martyr stands, where the marriage ceremony took place, and the Ducal Palace, where they travelled to for the reception. She wowed the crowds, with one person writing, quote, She is most beautiful of face, with vivacious, laughing eyes, upright in her posture, acute, most prudent, most wise, happy, pleasing and friendly. On arrival at the palace, she was greeted by the entire court, which put on a splendid show. Ferrara was awash with poets, musicians and artists of all kinds. But I'm sure, after her long journey, the only thing Lucrezia really would have wanted was her bed. Then again, she still had one last duty to perform there. The bride and groom were accompanied to their chamber with a blaze of trumpets and cheers, 
are then left alone to officially become man and wife. Ercole d'Este reported to the Pope that, quote, Last night our son, the illustrious Don Alfonso, and she kept company, and we are convinced that both parties were satisfied. Isabella was more explicit in her letter to her husband. Quote, From what I have been given to understand, Don Alfonso took her three times. The wedding festivities continued for several days, and two things became clear. Lucrezia had wowed her father-in-law, but singularly failed to win over her sister-in-law. Ercole wrote to the Pope, quote, Lucrezia has so satisfied me by the virtues and worthy qualities that I find in her, that not only am I confirmed in this good disposition, but the desire and intention to do so have greatly increased in me. And so much the more as I see your holiness by a brief in your own hand, lovingly suggest this to me. Let your holiness be of good cheer, because I shall treat the said Duchess in such a wise that your beatitude may know that I hold her ladyship for the dearest thing that I have in the world. Meanwhile, Isabella wrote catty notes back to her husband, complaining that Lucrezia slept in too much, was lazy and cold to others. Lucrezia would have been constantly aware that she was being judged, that all eyes in Ferrara were on her. Her reputation preceded her, and many had preconceived notions of the kind of person she was. Those that saw her as cold and reserved perhaps mistook it for caution and nervousness. She knew that making a good impression was vital, and that she was only here because her father and brother had forced Ferrara's hand. While she made an effort to make a good impression, she was no one's doormat, and was not afraid to put her foot down when she felt she wasn't being treated fairly. This is evident in the negotiations over her allowance. Ercole tried to play hardball with the Borgias, offering a paltry 8,000 ducats per year for her upkeep, while Lucrezia stated she couldn't go any lower than 12,000. He tried to split the difference at 10, but Lucrezia continued to argue that this was not enough. She had already made compromises on the size and makeup of her household, but her allowance was the very basis of her power in Ferrara. Lowballing her wasn't just mean, it was potentially dangerous for her long-term survival. In this fight, she did not have the support of her husband, who, after doing his duty on the wedding night and on a few other occasions, went back to his priorities of guns and girls. It didn't help that she was also pregnant, a stressful time in ordinary moments, but the pressure to produce a healthy male heir was huge. When added on top of her isolation and fights with her in-laws, it was a time of such struggle that she checked herself into a convent to regroup. She wasn't eating well, she became withdrawn, and her brother wasn't exactly helping. Cesare was still looking to expand his mini-empire in the Romagna, and in 1502 had conquered the city of Urbino, whose duchess was Elisabetta Gonzaga, Isabella d'Este's sister-in-law. And then things got worse. The summer of 1502 was cold and wet, filling the swamps around Ferrara to the brim, providing ideal breeding grounds for mosquitoes. This led to a deadly malaria outbreak, which hit Lucrezia in the sixth month of her pregnancy. She suffered uncontrollable vomiting and lost the power of speech. It was so severe that her husband tore himself away from his guns to be by her side. 
By September, her symptoms had not alleviated, and she suffered labour pains. I've been fairly mean about Alfonso so far, but he really seems to have stepped up here. According to her physician, he acted as, quote, obstetrician, nurse, and maitre d', prodding the cooks, besieging us with questions, and encouraging the midwife. Even with that support, later that same evening, she delivered a stillborn baby girl. She was so ill that her husband and doctors kept the news of her daughter's death from her for several days. They thought the shock might literally kill her. That is, if the malaria didn't finish her off first. Indeed, one day her pulse was so weak that she reportedly exclaimed, Oh good, I'm dead, and made plans to produce a last will and testament. However, a few days later, she showed signs of recovery, and on the 9th of October, she was well enough to be transferred to the care of some nuns at Corpus Domini. Sadly, history hasn't recorded when she was told about her daughter's death. One can only imagine the shock and the grief. Meanwhile, her brother had set his greedy eyes on another city held by a Deste in-law, this time Bologna. Pope Alexander had finally won his bloody vendetta with the Orsini, the mighty Roman family he had believed had killed his son Juan. He had subjugated Rome to his will completely, and now Cesare seems set to take yet another city. But then, something unexpected happened. His generals mutinied. Somewhat uncharacteristically, he invited them to a meeting to parley and resolve their differences. Then, much more characteristically, he double-crossed them, having them arrested and thrown in the dungeon. Classic Cesare. While all this was going on, Lucrezia was recuperating at Corpus Domini. This gave her time to reflect on her few months in Ferrara, and she resolved to make a change. She had spent too long cooped up indoors with her Spanish ladies that she had bought from Rome. The fighting with her father-in-law and her illness meant that she had not seen much of the city or met any new people. And, as it happened, when she re-emerged in society, she would meet and fall in love for a second time. Producing correspondence, Lord Byron would later deem, quote, the prettiest love letters in the world. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.